0: In your Bible, the book of Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, and the subject today is hope for the new year, hope for the new year, Romans chapter 15, and I'll read only one verse right now, but stand with me as we read it together, Romans chapter 15, and we're looking at verse number 13, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. Now, there's God's plan for us this year to abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And so we see that there is a spiritual connection with the Holy Spirit and us having hope in our life. That unsaved people, by definition, could not have biblical hope. So read it again. Everybody with me now aloud, a great verbal choir, if you will. Let's read. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Thank you, and you may be seated. The name Viktor Frankl will be familiar to some of you, perhaps not everyone. He lived in Vienna, Austria during the Second World War, and Frankl was a Jew. And of course, the Nazis overran the little nation of Austria, and they began to to look for the Jews and to take them to the extermination camps, the concentration camps, the ovens, the gas ovens of Hitler where he cremated over six million Jews during the war. And uh, Frankel, there in that camp experienced literal hell on earth. He, His entire family, for example, had all been burned in those gas ovens and He was the only one in his family left. He writes his own description of those days. He was in a cell that was about six by eight feet, alone. They stripped him naked. He did not have a thread on his body. He is alone. He knows his family is dead. He is afraid Because the most horrible things that Hitler did other than murdering people was he did experiments on these prisoners. He did experiments on their bodies. Horrible, unspeakable, torturous things. And Frankel was undergoing that. And so it was about as dark a day as a human being could possibly have. But he he willed himself to be observant of what was happening in the lives of other people. Among other things, he said, it helped him get his mind off of his own conditions. And so, he, wrote, he later wrote about his observations and the power of hope in those camps. And he had two basic observations that he put in his writings. First of all, he observed that the people in the camps did not live very long once they lost hope, that hope is absolutely essential to life, and that when people lose all hope, they shrivel, they die, even physically they die. His second observation was that the very slightest ray of hope, he said just a rumor of better food or possible escape or the war ending, caused people to survive against overwhelming odds. In other words, he said, just the slightest little ray of hope would keep people alive in these horrible, horrible conditions after they should have died otherwise. And so, Frankl was one of the great students of what the power of hope can do in a person's life. When I've read his books more than once, and I think about our time today, and I think about the present state of hopelessness that I sense is overwhelming our country and our world today. A look at the world scene on this very last day of 2023 tells me that the sky over America and around the world is pretty dark. There are heavy, heavy clouds building, and we don't know if there will be a storm or not. We pray not. I wrote down, and I was going to describe this, and I thought if I go through all of these things, people are going to want to get up and leave because it is so dark. And so I just simply listed them. Right now, there are two wars going on in the world, one in Ukraine and one in Israel. Our borders are open and something like 22 million people have entered the United States illegally in the last 12 years or so. Climate change, we're being told all the ominous threats of the, the, the world. AOC, a congress lady from up in Brooklyn, said the world's going to end in 12 years, and that was eight years ago. And uh, so we'll see about that. But because of so-called climate change, Now, we're being told what kind of car to drive. This week, the White House put out a statement about the kind of refrigerators you're going to be allowed to have in the future. And so, we have that cloud in the sky. We have the economic cloud in the sky. Our debt is over $30 trillion. It will never be repaid. That would be impossible. And we're all living with inflation every time we go to the grocery store I can carry out in one bag and one hand about $30 worth of stuff now when I go to the grocery store. Our government is spying on us through the FBI and the CIA, and we know that the Justice Department now no longer represents blind justice. It depends on who you are, how much justice that you get in America. We know that crime is abounding. and A lady this week reported that in Madison Avenue, on the main streets off of Broadway in New York City, 25% of the businesses have already closed because of crime. They can't stay open with the goods all being stolen. We know that education has now become a propaganda arm of the left in the country. We know that churches now have changed in their methodology and their message and that what we call apostasy, has taken over in many, many, many places. One major denomination now has split, and 6,000 of their churches have already left because of their position on the LGBTQ issues. We know that technology now is holding out in the next five years for us what we call AI, artificial intelligence, and the people who have invented that are now warning us about its potential dangers. We know there's problems with families, the disintegration of the family, and even now people not be even bothering to get married. So, are you depressed? Have I given you a pretty dark picture here? I intended to because, let me tell you, look up here and listen to me. We need to start dealing with reality, and we need to start dealing with the truth in America. Part of our problem is is we're whistling through the graveyard. We don't want to face what's around us. We want want some pleasantries, and I understand that. Many times I do too. I think that's the popularity of positive thinking preachers today, preachers who preach very little of the Word of God, but the people leave feeling good because they have been told if you think certain positive thoughts, you're going to feel better. And people really don't want the truth. I want you to open your Bible, and I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 30 in your Bible, because I think this is a great deal of the attitude that people have today. And even sitting in good churches like this one, where the Bible is preeminently taught. But in Isaiah chapter 30, and in verse number 10, it was the same problem back there at this point in history. Isaiah was preaching to the people and warning them of the threats that were going to come from Babylon and that their nation was going to be overrun. And he was pleading with them to repent and turn to God and, and order their lives uh, along that line. And here's what he said in verse 30 of uh, verse 10 of chapter 30 which say to the seers, now the seers are the preachers, the seers are the prophets. And the people are saying to the preachers, see not, we don't want you to see the future. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Don't tell us the truth. Preach unto us smooth things, how to be a better you. Smooth things, make us feel good, preacher, prophesy deceit, we would rather you lie to us and deceive us than to tell us the truth. Because the truth, well, we don't want to hear it. It may be unpleasant. We don't want to hear about the fact that we need to repent or we're going to be overcome by the Babylonians and we're going to go into captivity. Get out of the way, preachers. Verse 11, turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from among us. We don't want to hear about God anymore. We don't want the Bible anymore. This was the response of the people of Isaiah's day, and to a great degree. I think that's the thing, uh, the overwhelming attitude of people in America today. And I ask myself, when I listen to the news and I hear all this bad news that's out there, where is the deep concern of people in America? Why are we not absolutely um, gathering in the streets of America? Why are we not crying out to God? Why are we not demanding that our political leaders and other leaders of the country, that they turn the, from the direction that they're leading the country right now? Where is the concern? We're supposed to be a representative republic. Where is the concern of the people today today? And I realize, and I hope you realize, politics cannot save us. The Democrats or the Republicans are not going to save this country right now. We, we are beyond that point, I believe. The government can't save us. One more great government program is needed like we need a hole in the head in America. We don't, government can't help us. And education is not going to save us. Look at what education has done to our young people around the country when you see hundreds of thousands of them gathering and protesting against Israel and and what happened on October the uh, the 7th and all the pro-Palestinian rallies that are going on today. And? Science is not going to save us. People are looking to science, but science is not going to save us. So, politics can't save us, and government can't save us, and and science can't save us. I, I read the w- most wonderful explanation the other day of, of uh, science. It said a woman can bake a cake, and science, a scientist can come along, and he can look at that cake and analyze that cake and tell you everything about every ingredient in it. But the one thing science will never be able to do, he can't tell you why the woman baked the cake. The scientists will never tell you why the woman baked the cake. And you know what? God created a universe. And our scientists today, they can analyze every element of our universe and they can tell us all about it, but they can't tell us why God created it. And they can't, can't tell us God's purpose for creating it, why we're here, and what God expects of us. So, science is not going to solve our problems. When people don't know their purpose, they lose their hope. And so, things are very dark. Yes, point one in my message today. The present state of hopelessness in the world. Things are dark. I like it the way Adrian Rogers said it, though, years ago. He said, they're gloriously dark. Things are gloriously dark, and let me tell you why. Now, but first let me offer for you a question. Is it reasonable to have hope under the present circumstances that we're under? Is it reasonable for us as Christians to sit here, and, and I've tried to give you a, a, a view of reality as you're reading it in the newspapers and watching it on television in the light of what I've just said, is it reasonable for us to have uh, hope in our lives right now? You see, the normal use of the word hope, as people use it in, every, in their everyday vernacular, is, has in it the idea of uncertainty. And so when you talk about hope, you're usually injecting some idea of uncertainty. I hope it doesn't rain. See, I'm not certain it might rain, it might not rain. I hope. My team wins the ball game. They might win, they might not win the game. Basically, hope, as we use it in our normal vernacular, is uh, wishful thinking. It's something might happen, but something might not happen. And so we tend to think of hope as being an uncertain an uncertain thing. But the biblical word for hope, as you find it right here in Romans chapter 15 and verse. 13, abounding in hope, it says. That biblical word simply means this. Now, circle it maybe, circle the word hope in your Bible and write this out there in a white space somewhere. Hope is a confident expectation. A confident expectation that something is going to happen. It's unrealized yet, it's still unrealized, but it's going to happen. It's going to be certain. So, hope. In the Bible, is not the same as hope in the English world. Hope in the Bible means a confident expectation, unrealized, but a certainty. There's only two places in all the universe today where you where there's no hope. Have you ever thought about that? Only two places where there's, where there's no, no hope. hope. There's, there's no, there's no hope, in hope in heaven because you don't need hope in heaven. And there's no hope in hell because there absolutely is no hope. And now that uh, we are through the dark part, let's talk about some hope this morning. Amen? All right, number one, four reasons a Christian can have hope when the whole sky's falling in. Number one, because of God Himself. Look there and write down the reference Romans chapter 15 and verse number 13. And it begins, the verse begins like this, this, now the God of hope, the God of hope, God is said to be the God of hope. And notice there that we're supposed to abound in hope. That means we're to be full of hope and we're to do it with joy and peace because of believing we have faith. And notice also that the power of For hope is what? It is the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, which means, of course, then, if you're a Christian, you can draw upon the Holy Spirit in your life, and you can be abounding in hope. Now, if you're not saved, if you're an unsaved person today, I can't promise you that kind of hope because you don't have the Holy Spirit working in your life uh, right now. Over in the book of Psalms, number 42, maybe you ought to turn there with me today because we need to get all the hope that we can get here, huh? And in Psalm number 42 and in verse number 11, the psalmist asks a question of himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why am I cast down? Why am I so depressed? Why am I so listless? So, why do I have so little hope? Why art thou disquieted within me? And then he says, here's the answer, hope thou in God. Why are you cast down? Your hope ought to be in God himself. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1 says, the Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. The Lord Jesus Christ who is our hope. Now, listen to me. Number one reason that I can have hope today as a Christian, that I don't have to be depressed about everything happening in the world. I can live above that. A victorious life is, number one, is because of God himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, my hope is not in the government. My hope is not in somebody's program or idea or philosophy. My hope is in a person. And that person is the creator of this universe. Stop and think about that. My hope is in the Savior who loved me so much that he came and died on the cross for me. If I have that going for me, doesn't that give me a basis for hope in my life? If I really believe in what the Bible says about God, and if I really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior today, There is a basis for hope in my life. To know that he loves me. But listen, even beyond that, to know that he has a plan for me. To know that he has a purpose for my existence, for my being. To know that God has something for me that every day I just need to find what he wants me to do and walk in his truth here as revealed in the Scripture. And I can have hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness, His blood, His sacrifice, revealing His love for me and His concern for me and His care for me. Number two, the second reason for hope is the Word of God, the Word of God. You see, the Word of God is full of clear and certain promises, and without it, I wouldn't have any basis. I wouldn't even know about God or the Lord Jesus, would I? So, the Word of God is the second basis for my hope. In fact, one of the major themes of the Scripture today is hope. Over and over and over, scores of times, you will see in your Bible the word hope there. And I want you to turn again because I want you to understand these verses. And go with me to Hebrews chapter 6 in your Bible. Write that down, Hebrews 6 and verse number 19. And it's sort of a familiar verse, but I want you to look at it again. Hebrews 6 and 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Now I want you to mark in your Bible this: Our hope serves as an answer to our. uh, uh, serves as an anchor rather to our soul. Our hope is our anchor. You know what an anchor is. Everybody's been in a little boat or a big boat, and there's an anchor. An anchor is a device that uh, holds the boat steady. It anchors it to the bottom. It keeps it from drifting. Do you want today to live a life where you're not always drifting, where your purpose and your, and, 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 and your intentions are being carried out, you're, you're seeking to carry out God's will as you know it to be? Well, then you need an anchor or the winds of culture will blow you all over the lake. You need an anchor. What is our anchor? The Bible says our anchor is the Word of God. And it's steadfast, it's sure, it holds us when the winds of life would blow otherwise. Number three, let me give you a third reason that a Christian can have hope this morning. First, God himself, the person that we worship. Number two, the Word of God, which is our anchor. Number three is the resurrection of Jesus Christ the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, how does that? what has that got to do with hope? Okay, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read one little short verse here, but I want you to see it in your Bible and possibly mark it. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If only in this life we have hope, You see, there's a lot of things that we, our hope has to be, has to extend beyond this life. There's a lot of things that just absolutely end at the grave. All the philosophies of men end at a hole in the ground somewhere. And so if I am going to have hope, it's got to extend, Christian hope has got to extend beyond that hole in the ground. All of the humanistic worldviews. Atheism, how's it end? No hope. A hole in the ground. Where does hedonism, living your life for pleasure, where does it end? It ends in a hole in the ground. It might be a nicer hole. You might have a more expensive casket. But it still ends in the same place. Where does narcissism live? I'm gonna live for myself. I am going to. Uh, I am the whole sum of my existence. I am what's important. Narcissism real popular today. It ends in a hole in the ground. Where's materialism end? Every humanistic philosophy ends at the grave. And so there's no answer then to the great problems that we face in life if if everything ends at the grave. There's no answer to the problem of evil. Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much pain and why is there so much suffering? Why was there a Hitler or a Mao or a Stalin? Why is there the things, the the atrocities that are occurring even today across the world? We hear about them. Why is there slavery and trafficking Going on even in our times. Why are these evil things happening? Well, atheism doesn't have any answer to that. But the Bible has an answer to that. If you follow these humanistic philosophies, there's no ultimate justice either. If you think about what the atheist believes that there is no God, well, then Hitler won. He did what he wanted to do in life, he won. But the Christian has an answer to that. You see, listen to me carefully. If Jesus Christ really, truly rose from the grave, then death is not the end. Number two, if Jesus Christ truly rose from the grave, atheism is a lie. And if Jesus Christ truly rose from the grave, there is life beyond the grave. Now, you see, There's tremendous hope in that. A skeptic skeptic one time said, if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then what's he doing hanging on a cross? If he's all-powerful, why is he hanging on a cross? And I'll tell you why. Because at the cross and on the cross, Jesus Christ met sin. And he met evil face-to-face, head-on. He didn't choose to remain distant up there in the sky, living in heaven in the ivory palaces looking down on a hurting world. No, he came down and became part of that world through the virgin birth. And he understood, he willingly experienced suffering and pain, and even the curse of sin, Jesus Christ took it upon himself. And he hung there on that cross and After the cross, he came down and he conquered death. He walked out of that tomb. If he rose from the dead, there will be justice. Because in 2 Timothy 4 and 1, the apostle Paul says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the quick or the living and the dead at his appearing. Jesus Christ is the judge, the ultimate judge. One day you and I are going to stand before Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to stand at a different judgment than those who rejected him, but he's the judge. Hitler will pay. Every sin will receive a recompense, a reward, as it says over in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. Justice will prevail someday. Things will be right someday. I recently have become acquainted in the last couple of years, and I watch sometimes his videos on YouTube. A man named John Lennox, and John Lennox is a believer. He is an he is the head math, head of the math department at Oxford University, which is probably pretty. Uh, you know, pretty great credentials in themselves for a man to think. But he's become one of the outstanding apologists for Christianity. And there's what he says about the resurrection. The empty tomb of Jesus is the basis of my hope. One of the basis, I would say. The rock on which all the materialistic philosophers dash themselves in vain. yes. Because if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, there's life after death. Atheism is a lie. Justice will prevail. Yes, the empty tomb is one of the bases for our hopes as believers today. And then there's a fourth reason, the return of Christ. The return of Christ. Adrian Rogers said a few years ago in a message, Ultimately, the second coming of Christ is our only hope. It's our only hope that someday God in the person of Jesus is going to come back to this world. And he's not coming this time to die. He's coming to take over. He's coming back not as the lamb. He's coming back as the Lion of Judah. He's not coming back this time to suffer He's coming back this time to reign. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He wasn't that the first time. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, We are looking for that blessed hope. There's the hope. What is the blessed hope? It's the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen. I know preachers have talked about this for centuries and I know I've preached hundreds of times on it through the years here, but, but don't let, don't become seared and hardened to the frequency of mention. Listen to me, all the signs that we preached about through the years are now existent. All of the signs of the second coming of Christ, no matter which one you want to pick out, every one of them have been fulfilled and they're in place. Now, how long will it be before he comes? No man knows the hour. I understand that. But I can tell you, don't say things are like they've always been. They're not like they've always been. For the first time in history in the last few years, every single sign that I can find in the Bible has been fulfilled. So that gives me hope. Could it be that we might be alive when that thunder sounds, uh, trumpet sounds, and the voice shouts, and the Lord Jesus Christ appears above the earth and calls his believers? Could it be? I mean, it's... It's so wonderful, it's almost beyond our ability to conceive of it. That we would be the generation who would be alive and we would actually experience the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know the world mocks at us, scoffs at the idea. In fact, if you read 2 Peter, that's one of the signs. When they start mocking and scoffing and ridiculing us for believing in the Lord's return. Look out. That's one of the signs. And could it be that we might be one of those who are alive and remain when the Lord appears? Wouldn't that be wonderful today, church? My goodness, all these, uh, who would care about the inflation? I don't care if they charge $1,000 a pound for a hamburger then. Do you? That won't matter to me. The Lord Jesus Christ has returned, and there will be peace. And there will be justice, and a king shall reign in righteousness. And listen to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14. How beautiful. Listen to it. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a picture. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The child will play upon the whole of the cobra. And a little child will lead them, meaning there will be ultimate peace. Now, all of that hope, though, go back to Romans 15 and 13 where we started. All of that hope depends on you being saved. You see, that abounding hope and joy comes from the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life. And when you get saved and trust Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit enters, according to Romans chapter 9. And so I don't really have any basis of offering hope to the man who is a rejecter of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go back through my four points, if a person is rejecting Christ, he's rejecting the Word of God. He is not trusting in The gospel, which ended with the resurrection of Christ, he's not looking for the return of Christ. I don't have any basis to offer you hope until you come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, then you will understand him and know his love for you as a person. He will become your king and your Lord, and you will love him with all of your heart. You'll read his word like it was a love letter from home. You'll trust in his resurrection because it's the capstone of his gospel. And you will look for the day when he will come, hoping that it will be in your time. The year was 1939. On the throne in England was King George the Sixth. His custom was every year at that time to address the entire British Empire with a radio message all across. England, Australia, Canada, the whole empire at that time, a great empire. He would, he would make this address on Christmas Day. But 1939 was not just another year because in a very short time, Britain would be fighting for its very existence. Hitler would be bombing London and the major cities, and the Nazis would be seeking to take over. To encourage his people on that Christmas day, George VI read the preamble to a poem. The poem was obscure. Nobody had ever heard of it. It was entitled, God Knows. It was written by a woman who had been a, a missionary to India. Her name was Minnie Louise Gaskins. She had returned from the mission field and had now become a professor at the London School of Economics, a very prestigious uh, school there and college there in in London. And her poem, God Knows, has come down to us today. This is what the king read when the attacks by the Nazis was imminent upon his country. It's called The Gate of the Year, this part of it. Listen to it. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, that would be the Lord, wouldn't it? Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That will be better than a light and safer than a known way. And so I went forth and finding the hand of God I trod gently into the night. And he led me toward the hills and the breaking of the day in the Lone East. Boy, I read that a few years ago. I quoted it a few years ago here. I fell in love with that. Isn't that wonderful? Read it with me, everybody, from the top. And I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be better than light and safer than a known way. So I went forth and finding the hand of God, I trod gladly into the night. And he led me toward the hills and the breaking of day in the Lone East.